I'm going to start this morning by telling you the two big central ideas which will run throughout my teaching in December. First, the great social problems of our day are rooted in anxiety. The pervasive and sometimes pointed sense of being unsettled, insecure, uncertain, afraid, vulnerable, threatened, under-resourced, and adrift. Collectively and individually, more and more people today are caught in the deep swirls of existential angst. Our problem is anxiety. Do you see that? Here's the second idea. The promise of Christmas is the promise of peace. It's the promise of well-being in every way that an individual or a collection of people can experience well-being. Nothing held back at all, which is good for you and human flourishing individually and as a collection. Cooperation, security, abundance, confidence, trust, joy, gratitude, clarity, safety, and rest. Christmas is the story of how God has given to the world and everyone in it the gift of peace. That's the second big idea. Uh, Any keen observer of the world or of oneself will say, if it's been given, then why don't I experience it? Why is there so much disarray all around me? That's a sensible question. In Christ, what God has done is to open a door which now we are free to walk through, which before we were not, and it's the door that leads to the path of human flourishing. And you, my friend, you are completely free to go through it. The trouble and the mess that's all around us, I would say one way to interpret it is to say that it's the world's rejection of the great gift which God gave at Christmas time. And before we become too judgmental of the world around us, we ourselves will find anxiety persisting in all of its forms. And we would have to admit that it's our own decision to walk away from the door that God has opened, which really at root leads to the anxiety which surrounds us everywhere. Listen, let's talk about anxiety. Beneath Every miserable news story that you read and hate, if you dig deep down enough, this is my conviction, beneath the aggression and the cruelty and the insensitivity and violence, what you will discover at the bottom is desperation that is growing in the soil of anxiety. The fear of not having enough makes people into monsters. The stress of living in scarcity day after day twists the human heart. The perceived threat from people who are different from me, the uncertainty that comes with lacking control, the spiritual dislocation that comes from being separated from God has awful and measurable incomes. Listen, outcomes, excuse me. When people are chronically afraid, they are sapped of compassion and understanding for others and for themselves too. Then aggressiveness rises. Then divisions intensify. When people deep down inside, are seeped in anxiety, then they seek security in the wrong way, in belonging to well-defined groups which create adversaries to be against others. Racism, sexism, elitist attitudes, hatred, dismissal of others who we haven't even met, deep down inside, those become the norm when the fuel that drives us collectively is anxiety. Anxiety is our cultural sickness. Do you see this? It's not just cultural. 
It's personal too. I can say this because of the way that some of you have opened to me your own anxiety. Many here know the nagging grief of always feeling unsettled in their own skin, which is the primary driver behind almost every addiction. Do you know that? Did anybody read in the Times this week that the United States of America, uh, for the first time since 1915, for three years in a row, our life expectancy has diminished? Do you know that? It happened in 1950 to 1918 because of the First World War. Researchers say the reason that for these three years that life expectancy has gone down is for two reasons. Death from opioid addiction, 70,000 this year, and death from suicide. Both are markers that anxiety is a problem culturally and for individuals. Some of you have suffered grief because of these very things. Laying down at night, so very tired but unable to rest. Always moving and never ever still. Afraid, fearful, but not even able to tell why anymore. Anxiety is our problem too. If you yourself have suffered from individual anxiety or someone you love has or you feel it and you're sick of it culturally, would you in this silence take a deep breath and let your heart say whatever it needs to say? Now, please listen. That's the problem, but here's the promise. The promise of Christmas is the promise of peace. It's the promise of peace which God has given freely and which completely opens the door for every one of us to walk through so we are able to be on the path away from strife so we can walk at ease with God so that we can be at peace with our brothers and sisters in the world all around us, the world which God loves so that we too live already in the peace which God has given at Christmas. And what I want you to see more than anything else this morning and each week in December is the reality of the peace which God has given to us and I want you to understand how to embrace and experience it so you grow in peace. If you are a Christian already, a follower of Jesus, I will remind you the truth about him. And who among us doesn't need to be reminded? Is there anyone? No, we all need a reminder. If you are not a Christian at all, you're a skeptic, here you are. Would you, for this time being, would you do this? Set aside all of your skepticism and open your mind. I'm not asking you to turn your mind off. Open it. The truth about anxiety, which has swallowed us up, is that you yourself will know that last year at this time you thought next year will be better. And was it? I don't think so. I think anyone who walks away from God or uh, ambivalent about God will always see the world continue to go down. And it's been that way forever. Have you ever been tempted with the thought to say, man, 2018 is the worst year in human history? Anybody else ever think that? Nobody? You're all so optimistic. <laughs> okay, there's a few of you. But listen, for as long as there have been people pronouncing the truth about the world, it has been in disarray. Uh, our teacher in this month is going to be Isaiah, a prophet. Um, just an aside, prophet does not mean someone who predicts the future, that's all. Uh, of course, part of prophecy is talking about what is yet unseen. It also means looking at the world with divinely tuned vision and telling the truth about what can be seen. And Isaiah was a man who did both. And he did both brilliantly because God himself spoke through this man, Isaiah. And in Isaiah's day, well, the world all around him, like our world, was swallowed up in anxiety that made a difference for everyone and for each person. 
His audience, his first hearers were people who knew what it was to be in disarray and to be lost. Like you know, for various reasons, he spoke to those folks and what he gave is a promise. He spoke realistically about the problem, anxiety, and he offered a promise. And I'm going to tell you now, the promise was that God would do something that would change everything. And that promise came to be. But I want you yourself to see the contours of the promise with me for this reason. I want you to know what to hope for. I want you to imagine peace. And then when that voice in you, that voice that says it's too good to be true speaks up, I want you to have the reason to say, no, it's not too good. Um, Would you try this for a minute? Would you picture peace for you and the world around you? And would you hear me tell you that it's not too good to be true? And in fact, it's exactly what God wants. And if we'll open our hearts to the word that Isaiah gives us, the word of God, then we'll hear the truth that God has set before us through him and has become realized at Christmas. Uh, I want you to look now with me at the words in Isaiah chapter 9. These these are the words of promise to a culture that is wrapped up in gloom. Look at this. Verse 1. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. No more grief for those who suffer. No more depression for those who are languishing. Hope for those who have no reason to hope. Peace for those who've been swallowed up in anxiety. Anguish and gloom will go away. Can you imagine what it would look like in our own time if this promise were to come true? Would you try it for me this morning? Would you use your imagination and try to picture it? Imagine No more gloom on planet Earth. That uh, that nose blow is (laughs) well-timed. I do it, listen, I do it to you virtually every week, don't I? Like, here I am, so we're even. Imagine no more anguish in our country. Would you imagine that? No more trouble in our town uh, or our schools. Imagine that it goes away in your school or in your workplace or your home. Imagine no more gloom or anguish for you personally so that it's a distant memory that's so small you can't even remember it. Would you let that grow in your mind for a moment? Isaiah promises here that this is what God is going to do, that he's going to take away gloom and anguish. And to fill that promise out, to make sense of it for minds who are living in the same world that we're living in, what Isaiah does is he, he gives five, five images of transformation. And I want to put them up here. The images of transformation which follow are meant to indicate for every longing human heart, all of you in here, what God had promised to do through Isaiah. I want you to look at the first one. It's in what Isaiah says after making this promise of gloom and anguish going away. In the former time, this is verse 1, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. 
The people who lived in Zebulun and in Naphtali and in Galilee of the nations were God's own people. They were made by God for love and for cooperation with their God. But through stubbornness and a lack of faith, they turned to idols instead of worshiping the true God. And all you need to do is read the first few chapters of Isaiah to see the contours of it. It was ugly and profound. And the result of turning away from God for them was that their relationship was spoiled. And you must get this if you know anything about what Christians believe. It is that to have the right relationship with God is the goal because everything good comes from that. But when the relationship with God is spoiled, all bad things follow. And what the, what the prophet said is God's looking at this and, and this is a land of contempt. Do you see it there? The relationship between God went from love to hatred, but what God is going to do is bring about transformation. And he's going to replace contempt with cooperation. That's the first image of transformation. It's right here. That God's going to make that way that was broken and ruined like our land is broken and ruined. Glorious. He's going to make it so good that people are going to want to sing when they think about it. Can you imagine that being true of our land? Contempt replaced with cooperation between us and everyone and God. That's the first image and it will be glorious. Look at the second one. This is verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Anyone in here know what it's like to live in a land of personal darkness? To look at the world around you and to think, I'm sunk in the darkness and it's deep. Or have you ever thought that about the country that we live in? About the crimes and the cruelty that people put upon innocence? It's dark and here's the promise, that light is going to come. Darkness is the time when a man or a woman cannot find her way to what's good. It's the moment where you know that you should be going forward, but you cannot see to save yourself at all without light. No one can make progress in the right direction. That's what darkness here symbolizes, the inability to know where to go. The promise of light is the promise to take away confusion and bring clarity. And that's a second transformative image here. For God to come in every area where you are just confused and confusion makes you anxious, doesn't it? It makes you unsettled and insecure. Here the promise is God will shine a light on that to chase away the darkness and put you right in the light where there's no question about which way to go. God will do it. That's a second image of transformation. Let's go on to the third. Uh, verse three. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as people exult when dividing plunder. Two images here that are lost on us because we don't live in the time which they lived in. But this transformation is to go from scarcity to abundance. I know, I know there are people in here whose hearts are wasting because they don't have what they need financially that that has caused a level of anxiety and grief that makes it so you cannot even sleep. That's one way to live in scarcity. Do others in here know what it's like to live in emotional scarcity? Of not having the connections and the support and love from the people around you that you know you were made for? That's hard, right? Does anyone know the scarcity of a lonely day? Yeah. That you'll come to church here, you won't talk to anybody at night, it's you by yourself again. And that's scarcity. God's promise to every scarcity through this prophetic word is that one day he'll turn it into abundance. Like when you've worked all year long 
And at the end of the year, you finally have the harvest and it's more than you could ever need. And so you bring everybody in the village together and you celebrate with the greatest party with an abundance of food. That's what joy at the harvest means. Can you picture it? Can you or not? Can you taste it? I can. I'm obsessed with food. It's true. It will be like dividing plunder. That's another image that's old. It means that the oppressor who is ruining your life has been routed and now every good thing that that enemy stole has been returned to you in full. Abundance. Can I say this? If you've lost someone you love because of drug addiction or suicide, the promise of hope in Christ is eternal life that will one day restore even that loss to you. It's not too much to hope for. You can't hope for too much with God. You can think that you're hoping for too much and then you don't get that thing which you thought was great. Well, let me tell you, if you didn't get it, it wasn't good for you anyway. That's who God is. I'm feeling it. Look at the next one. And this is the fourth image of transformation. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The day of Midian was a day when God's people were absolutely and utterly overwhelmed by an enemy that had all the power and they had none. And the best hope for them was a puny little guy named Gideon who had nothing at all. And God came and showed up and overwhelmed the enemy and rescued his people. And that's what it's going to be like, he says here. The rod of their oppressor is an image of cruelty and violence. The bar across their shoulders is an image of slavery and enslavement. Do some of you know what it feels like to be trapped and bound up, enslaved? Here God says, get ready because there is a day when I'm going to come and I'm going to overcome the enemy so that you will go from captivity to freedom. And that's another image of another promise of how God's going to bring transformation. Another promise which we, our culture needs it, and you personally need it, wherever you are in faith, to remember the promises of God. And Isaiah says, this is what God is going to do. Here's the last one. This is verse 5. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be consumed as fuel for the fire. Here's an ugly image. It's the image of the garments of a soldier soaked in blood, their boots covered with death. But what Isaiah says is that they'll be rolled up and they'll be burned in fire. Not a fire of rage and violence, but picture a campfire at the end of a fall evening. And instead of fear, instead of violence, you have peace. Would you picture that? And imagine God even twists the violence into an an object of his benevolent peace so that you're able to sit around with your friends and talk about the day. And there's nothing to worry about. The whole world shrinks in so that it's just you and the people there around that fire. Have you ever had an experience like that on a fall evening? Are you roasting marshmallows or not? It's good, right? And, and maybe you have kids and they're playing with your friend's kids. Maybe you're single, but you don't feel excluded just because there's a couple there. You all feel like one part of the human family and it's It's glorious. And there's peace. And there's no more anxiety. And that is the promise that Isaiah makes. Look at all five of them together. And here I want you again, I'm asking you, actually, I'm imploring you, I'm pleading with you to use your imagination for a moment and let yourself picture that this transformation were to happen in our own day and in your own life. Would you try that? 
Imagine that there'd be no more anger and hatred between people on the one hand and God on the other, but rather there'd be complete cooperation so that every man and woman would consciously and confidently walk in the mission that God had given them. Can you imagine that? Imagine no more confusion about the right way to go. When big decisions hit you, you have clarity and confidence instead of confusion. Imagine that. No more scarcity and the madness that comes with not having enough but abundance on the other hand. No more captivity physically, emotionally, spiritually, but in every way that a person can be free, you and this world are free. Imagine the end of violence and an age of peace. Can you picture it in our world together? No more threats to human flourishing. Enemies putting to rest their age-old animosities. No more bombs, no more shooting, no more terrorism, no more hatred and aggression. A place for every single person to sleep, security, food and provision for every needy child. Would you let yourself envision it? And now try this picture for, uh, for yourself personally too. That anxiety goes. And, and I'm going to ask you to be mature here. I'm not saying picture that all the circumstances change, but that you yourself have peace even in the midst of them. No more threats to your, your flourishing. Relationships are growing. Joy and confidence in the future for your children is there. Easy conversation and, and love between you and your teenager. Does that seem impossible? I saw a mom look at her teenager just now. Between you and your parents between you and your grandchildren, self-confidence instead of insecurity at school, at work, at home, loving and supporting and trustworthy friends. Imagine that. Imagine this last one. Imagine peace with yourself. Imagine that you looked in the mirror and you were no longer pretending that you were someone who you are not and you were fully aware of your shortcomings, but it was okay because your well-being is not established by your achievement. You know instead that God has chosen to receive you because he made you and loves you. No shame, no regrets, even though there are mistakes, and only a settled feeling in the presence. Please listen now. The promise of Christmas is that God has given this. How did he do it? Isaiah actually tells us that. And this is a promise for you to embrace. And it's a promise for us to unfold together in December. Look at verse 6. It tells us how God is going to make this promise, these transformations a reality. He says this, For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests on his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now here, Isaiah speaks of something that hasn't yet happened as if it has already happened. Do you notice that? That's a rhetorical vice, device that's called prolepsis. It means speaking of a thing that has yet to come as if it's already a reality, and you sometimes do this in your own speech, but only when you're 100% absolutely confident of a future outcome. And that's what's true right here for Isaiah, is that he knows that one day God, who is completely trustworthy, will do exactly what is required to make everything right, and what is required will come through a child who will be born for us. God will affect this transformation through a son whom he will give to us. Do you know who he's talking about? He's talking about the birth of Jesus. Isaiah is looking ahead. Listen to this. He's looking ahead to the time when there will be a mom and a dad who can't find anywhere to have their child because they're just too meager. 
And they'll enter into a village and there will be no room for them at the inn. And so he'll have to be born in a stable. And Isaiah looks at that and knows that's how God's gonna fulfill the promise to, to ruin anxiety forever and open the door for peace for every single man and woman. And that's true. Isaiah was thinking already of the child who at his birth would be the king and, and the people all around him wouldn't understand that. The religious authorities wouldn't know it. The, the king of Israel wouldn't know it. He'd be threatened. The only people who would know it would be the wise men. You remember them? The three wise men who traveled from far away. They would pay attention to the signs and so they would come and they would worship him upon whose shoulders authority already rested at his birth as the true king. Isaiah had in his imagination by God's grace already that evening when the shepherds were out watching their flocks by night. You know that part of the Christmas story? That's my favorite part, I think. Because they're lowly and mean. They've got nothing. They're outsiders. And they're standing under the stars looking after their sheep when the angels appear and they start to sing about God's glory. And then they say it, right? Peace on earth. Goodwill. That's what Isaiah was thinking about. Jesus Christ and his birth brings peace which chases away every and all anxiety. How? How does he do it? I'm going to answer this question partly this morning and then in the subsequent weeks. Four names were given to this child, this king at his birth. He was called the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, those in subsequent weeks. This morning I want to look at that first title briefly, Wonderful Counselor. Counselor means someone who knows which way to go. It means a guide who has just what you need to make the right decisions, the ones that lead you from failure into recovery and strength. Rather than following your own instinct and going whichever way seems right to you, rather following him, that's what a counselor is. And here, Isaiah speaks of a counselor who's wonderful. The word wonder here means, strictly speaking, beyond human capacity. That which one wonders at is beyond you to even think of. And it means here that this counselor has wisdom that no one else ever has access to, full stop. That if you're there with this counselor and you have this idea, but he has this one, you always go with him because not only is he a guide, he is completely trustworthy and reliable in every area of human life. Let me make this so utterly simple. The gift of Christmas is that Jesus, the child who was given to us, grows up to be the wonderful counselor. And if we will follow his counsel, we will find ourselves on the road to peace and away from anxiety in every way that a person can experience anxiety. Do you see it? It's not too simple. It's magnificent, this fact that Jesus is the counselor who will open for us the way to life which thrives. The fact is, if we were to take a sober look at the world around us, we could say that very few people, especially those who are active on the world stage, are actually making decisions one step after another by seeking the counsel that comes from Jesus. Instead, the norm right now, I would say, which is at root beneath all of the misery that leads to anxiety, is quite a different relationship between people and the decisions they make. Rather than seeking the counsel of Jesus, most often the counselor that we follow, and I'm going to make it personally, on us, is the counsel that comes from ourselves. Would anyone else admit to doing that? The moment you're yelling back, you are following yourself as a counselor. And does it get good? No. And so here, the truth about the world that we find in, I want to be pointed here, in part, the state of anxiety 
that we live in right now, and I want to be specific, not only the headline news stuff that you are sick of hearing, but the kind of passive and more socially accepted violence that people put upon each other, like kids being mean to each other in school so that a young person hates life because of the way they've been bullied. That's what I'm talking about. Or rather, the way that parents bully their children so they create an environment where it's not safe for kids to grow up. Do you know that happens? Or friends betraying one another instead of being trustworthy and then blaming, blaming the whole thing on God. That happens. Or the kind of relationship cruelty which causes us to suffer in an unsafe human family so that we're against our the people we don't even know in the world, We've, why we find ourselves languishing in an environment that seems to grow increasingly unsafe and violent, physically, emotionally, and spiritually destructive, is for this reason, are you ready? We have decided to become our own counselors instead of following the counsel of the wonderful counselor, Jesus. And if we see that, then we can be on the road to peace, which is to follow him. Listen, in part, this state of anxiety in our world is the natural outcome in every society in which the norm for right and wrong behavior is left up to the conscience of each and every individual within that culture. That's the truth. When the idea most broadly promoted is, no one should tell anyone else what's right or wrong. Each person should decide for himself. Everyone should be his own counselor. When that's the standard for ethical behavior, the results are bad for everyone. Do you know that? I'm not, I hope you don't, perceive me as mean or judgmental. I don't want to be. I want to be helpful. And so this is a truth which I think is important to name, that when everyone just decides to do whatever is right for them, eventually the result is chaos. I want you to look at this text. This comes from the end of the book of Judges, which some of you will know. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's another way of saying everyone became their own counselor. And this is about God's people. They decided not to do what God had invited them to do. All of us are free, please listen, to reject the gift of Jesus at Christmas by choosing to remain our own counselors. The reason this line was written at the end of the book of Judges was to interpret the story which is recounted right before it, which is among the most horrendous acts of brutality that I know of in the Bible. Do some of you know that story? I'm not going to say every detail. A man and his mistress are traveling home. They stop in a village Around twilight, they're supposed to be taken in because that's how it works in the villages of God's people. They're hospitable to each other, but no one takes them in. They sit there until night falls, and now it's getting dangerous. They finally are welcomed into a man's house, but not until they've been spotted by a mob of sexual predators. They approach the house. They pound on the door. They demand to have the man out there, the man who has traveled and the owner of the home, they talk together, their strategy is to push the mistress out and give her to the mob. They abuse her all night long until the sun comes up, and then they leave her for dead on the doorstep. The man takes her, travels back to his home. This is awful. He divides up her remains and mails them to the 12 tribes of Israel with a question. Has it ever been this bad in Israel since we left captivity out of Egypt? And the answer, of course, is no, it's never been that bad. And by the way, the only reason I would dare bring this ugly story into this church is I want to be real. And this stuff still happens in our own day. Do you know that? Have you seen the news stories? It's sickening. And the explanation for why it happens is right there. 
That's how the book ends, to say this is why it happens. When everyone does what's right in their own eyes, this is how low humanity sinks. Are, are you aware of how many stories have been told this year behind us of men who have power and have decided to use that power, usually they're in the entertainment industry, to abuse vulnerable women by turning them into objects for their sexual desires without any regard for the well-being of the women? Do you know how often that's happened? Actually, I bet we don't know how often. I bet it's happened more than we know. But that's what happens when men decide to do what's right in their own eyes with, without any regard for what's right. And it's not just there. It happens in many other ways as well. Greed that is unchecked is the result of, of people being their own counselors. Uh, when, a, when a person says, I can get as much as I want for myself, and I think it's right, that's what leads to things like the mortgage crisis that we all suffered through years ago. A few men decided this is a way to earn lots of money because we have insider information and power that others don't have, and whatever happens to the millions that suffer when we benefit, who cares? We're our own counselors. We can do what's right in our own eyes. Every social ill, if you trace it down, has at some point someone deciding, look, I'm going to decide what's right and what's wrong. Nothing is logically wrong with dismissing and dismissive and wicked attitudes toward people who are different than us culturally, ethnically, whose ideas are not the same as ours, as long as we decide to be our own counselors. Do you see that? There's nothing illogical about racism in a culture where everyone is free to decide what is right and wrong for himself. Then freedom of speech becomes a license for hate and vitriol and dehumanization of those who are different. Why not if it's up to every person to decide for himself what's right in his own eyes? In a land where everyone is their own counselor, these are the outcomes that we should expect and the result then is anxiety for everybody. But that's not the only way. And here's the gift of Christmas. Now I want to open your heart. I want you to open your heart to God. Consider what happens when the norm for behavior is the wonderful counselor, Jesus. I don't want you just imagining how nice it would be if there were peace, but I actually want you to imagine this. If everyone that you know followed Jesus into every action that they undertook, and you did too, that before you took a step forward, you considered Jesus right there beside you, and then you only acted after he gave you the next step. Can you imagine what it would be like? If you said at each day, listen now, Jesus, you are my counselor and your guidance is more wonderful than I could ever know. I submit to you every step and I won't go forward without you. I want to tell you that if you did that, what you would see is the diminishing of anxiety in your life and the increase of peace in every way that peace can be measured regardless of what happens with your circumstances. And I would add that in any culture where that begins to get momentum and a gathering like this with this many people added to it, the first service and the third service, then there becomes a force for peace in the world which is powerful and mighty. Not because we ourselves drum up peace, but because God himself is the one who brings peace through our decision to say, Jesus, you are my counselor and I will walk with you. I want you to look at this promise from John chapter eight, in which Jesus, the counselor who grew up, makes a promise to the disciples about what will happen if they trust him as their counselor. If you continue in my word, Jesus said, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. This is a promise for you. It's not a promise from me. It's a promise from Jesus who is our wonderful counselor who has come to bring peace. Know his word, 
continue in it, and you will see peace begin and grow. I want to close by reading to you one vision of what it would look like. This is from one of Jesus' followers who accepted Christ as his counselor, Paul, in Romans 12, verse 9. Let these images sink in, and this is what happens in your world and in the world when people accept Jesus as the counselor. Listen. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Do you hear that beautiful vision of peace? It goes on. Bless those who persecute you. If you're thinking, well, my enemies get in the way of it, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you actually are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it's possible for you, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never Avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them a drink. For by doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on their heads. Here, Paul means, uh, God means through Paul to say, you will, you will purify them so they go from being enemies to friends. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The gift of peace from God himself is an invitation for you to trust Jesus as your counselor and to live in love like this. There's only one question. Will you walk in it or not? And that is up to you. And what I, I implore you to do is to walk in the peace that Jesus has provided for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time to be together, uh, to join in this place, to study and learn, to listen to your word as it was spoken through Isaiah and then also as it came through Jesus himself in John. God, we thank you that the Bible is realistic about what it's like when people turn away from you and follow their own instincts. God, we see it in our own time, the misery and the destruction that comes when people claim the freedom for themselves to decide what's right. God, I ask now that this time together would build us up, that the seeds that have been sown here would grow in us, and that each of us would receive Jesus as our counselor. And that having received him, we would grow in faith, and especially now, that we would grow in peace because of it. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.